Hey guys, welcome to True Crime Couple episode number 167. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope that you're all doing well and enjoying this holiday season so far. As always, if you're a new member of our Patreon community, we will be personally thanking you for joining us at the end of this episode. And I thought that we would try something new today because we know it takes a lot to leave a review and we wanted you to know how much we appreciate it and that we read them and we like the kind things that you say and it doesn't go unnoticed. So John is going to read some reviews at the end of the show for us. I am. And he's <laughs> finding this out now. <laughs> Great. Don't be nervous. You'll be fine. The people want to hear you read sometimes. Well, I'm just going to say the reason why I don't is it's like this weird challenge that I have. I don't know why. Don't ask. Don't ask questions. But I will say this is what it is. I, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I need to have my head up looking at this mic to speak into it. And then it's like so hard to multitask reading and making sure that I'm where I need to be where the microphone is. And, I, and then I start to fumble and it's terrible. Don't so worry, I think John. I have the inability to multitask. I think you're going to be okay. I think so. I'll get through it. Yeah, I'll hold up the computer for you so you don't have to multitask. I'm already sweating. Yeah. <laughs> like you can see on the top of my forehead, I'm already sweating learning about this right now. Okay, well, I figured if I told you about it, it wouldn't happen. And now I have to hold you to it because we've told the people. You know what? You're right. Oh, your tricks. Well, if you want to join Patreon and get ad-free episodes and two full-length bonus episodes a month, join us at patreon.com slash couple. And we would love to hear what you think of the podcast. So please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen on. We will jump around and trust me, John will read more ads. Not ads. Sorry. No, don't. I don't want to read ads. No, not ads. I won't, they, Reviews. We, we won't have any more ads if I read them. <laughs> okay. So without any further ado, John, do you want to hear something crazy? Yes, I do. Pelham, Alabama in 1997 was a quiet blue-collar town in which crime was something that happened somewhere else. But on a night in early spring, the town would hear of a crime so heinous that it could never claim to be quiet ever again. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. On the chilly night of March 23rd, 1997, at around 9 p.m., the Pelham, Alabama Police Department received a 911 call from a frantic and distraught 16-year-old boy. Once he was able to, he told the operator that he just came home and found his father dead. He said that he had walked into the foyer of the home and found his father shot and laying in a pool of his own blood further into the house. It was clear that he was dead. He told the woman that he didn't know if the other members in the house were dead as well, but he didn't go inside, and he was referring to his father's girlfriend, Deirdre Hunt, and her two young daughters. The dispatcher was horrified but fell back on her training. She told Mark Duke to get out of the house to safety. She didn't know if his father's murderer was still in the house. She told him that the police were on their way and that he should wait for them outside. He confirmed that when he saw the scene, he ran into the kitchen to get the cordless phone and was already outside of the house. When the officers arrived at the scene, they got the information from Mark as to where the body of his father was. And then they went in to secure the scene and ensure that the claims the boy was making were true. Mark sat outside, completely alone. As the officers moved to clear the house, they were met with a massacre. And I'm just going to warn you and everyone that this is a rough crime scene. Like, Hollinsburg massacre bad. That bad? Yeah, it's pretty bad. You know, at this point, I just feel like when we're dealing with family massacres, they're never good, ever. No. <laughs> and the crime scenes are always horrific. 
I still have a hard time getting the the last one out of my head. I know. I'm and now sorry, we're going guys. into another one. <laughs> yes, yes. And this one is extremely graphic and very emotional. So I just want to give that warning before I get into it. But are you ready to go? I'm ready. I'm buckled in. Okay. As soon as they walked through the door, they saw that the front living room of the house was a mess. A massive struggle had ensued. 39-year-old Randy Duke had fallen onto his back in front of the fireplace. There was so much blood surrounding him. It would later be determined that he was shot several times and stabbed seven to nine times in the head and in the back. Next to his body was one of the murder weapons. Well, part of it. It was a blade from a kitchen steak knife. The handle was missing. So Randy Duke had been stabbed so brutally in the face that it broke the handle off of the knife. Wow. Okay, so that had to be super aggressive to actually break the handle off. I would also say that a steak knife is um, flimsy in use of what it was being used for, if that makes sense. So, I mean, it's not the way that it's kind of made. The blade easily falls from the handle of the knife. Um, But it does show that the killer or killers or one of them did get the knife from within the home. Right. So that's an interesting fact. That is. And it's also overkill, most definitely. Definitely. Directly behind Randy was a coffee table. What drew the officer's eyes to the table was not the children's crayon drawings, but what was spattered and sitting upon them. In a juxtaposition of the bright colors were spurts of blood and human teeth. What is going on? The horrific scene led their eyes beyond the table. Because from the coffee table, all the way through the house, there was a trail of blood that led them to the stairs. Guns drawn, the officers followed the blood trail up the stairs and to the second level of the house. The trail continued down the hallway, but they had to stop and check the bedrooms and bathrooms along the way before they followed where the trail led. They had to ensure that there was no one alive in the home or the people that did this weren't still there. So the first thing they do is go into the first bedroom. This bedroom, much like the living room, was in complete disarray. But carved into the sheetrock were emblems and wordings that the officers had seen used before in gang-related crimes in the area, specifically Birmingham. But there was nobody in that room. It looked like it belonged to the teenage boy, and they assumed it was the bedroom of Mark, who was not home, obviously, when this attack took place. In the next bedroom, the one that faced the front of the house, they found a little girl laying down over an AC vent. She was next to her bed. It was the body of seven-year-old Chelsea Hunt, the daughter of Mark Duke's fiancé. The little girl had fought hard for her life, She had defensive wounds on her hands and arms. The officers knew that she was dead because of the amount of blood that surrounded her tiny body. They were right not to disturb the crime scene, but if they had turned her over after checking to see if by some miracle there was a pulse, they would have discovered, as the coroner later would, that her throat had been deeply cut. From the positioning of her body, It was clear that the girl had been trying to hide under her bed from her attacker or attackers when they dragged her out from under it. This is crazy. This is like the way that you're describing this to me is like like the worst like horror movie ever, like Home Invader movie. That's what it feels like. Yeah, it's like The Strangers the next morning. Yes. But what's interesting about this is that it seems like, I mean, because now this whole family seems to have been murdered except for the one that wasn't there, right? So yeah. it's interesting that whoever did this or people that did this didn't just go after the mother and the father. They went after these kids too, which is even worse. Right. But that, to me, that just seems a little bit more personal. And also those gang symbols also seem a little, it either is the real deal or we're dealing with someone that's trying to make it look like it's gang related. Right. So there's a lot of clues here, though, which is interesting. Yeah, they 
there are a lot of clues for investigators to go through, and it leads them down a lot of different directions. It's this is gonna. I feel like this is gonna be a uh, interesting one. Yeah, this is gonna be an interesting one for you to figure out. That's what I was thinking okay. as I was doing it. So there was one room left, the room to which the blood trail traveled. Based on what they had seen so far, I'm sure the officers who, at this point, had a long time prior called for backup and crime scene units, of course. I'm sure they were scared to go into this room because I think they thought they've seen the worst there is to see. But what's behind this door where the blood trail leads? Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's it's like movie-esque, you know, but it's not just that. It's also you have to put your mind like yourself in the mind of a, of a cop, right? They're trying to – they're coming onto a scene. They have no idea what's going on. There's bodies and blood everywhere. Right. And truly, you don't know if that person or people that did this are still there. Yeah, that's you, why they yeah. had to slowly kind of go through and systematically clear the rooms before they just went to where I guess you'd want to go following the blood trail. Right. And then think how nerve-wracking that must be that at any moment – you're either going to find something that you don't want to see or that there's someone still active in the house. Yeah, or potentially fight for your life. Yeah, exactly. So when they enter the bedroom, it seemed to also be in disarray, much like the living room had been. They found drawers pulled out and clothes strewn all over the floor and bed. The door to the master bathroom was closed, but never had it been more obvious that violence lay behind a door. Blood pooled from beneath the closed door, and the upper left-hand panel of the six-panel door had been knocked inward, like someone had been trying to break in. So it was clear that whoever was left in the family had tried to barricade themselves in the bathroom, and the killers got in, or the killer got in. That is so scary. It seemed, you know, that they had been successful in their break-in attempt, and that they were able to reach in through the door, and the officers assumed to let themselves in. The officers opened the bathroom door and found the bodies of six-year-old Chalissa Hunt and her 29-year-old mother, Deirdre Hunt. Deirdre Hunt was Chalissa's mother and Chelsea's mother and was Mark's fiance. Okay. So Randy Hunt is Mark Hunt's father, and he just recently got engaged to Deirdre Hunt, who had her two daughters over the house. But okay. Mark was the only one who wasn't home when the murders took place. So let me just get this straight. Hold on. So the 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 fiance have kids from a prior marriage? Yes. Okay, and then so did he. Correct. And then they got together. Okay, yes. so blended family. Yes. Gotcha. It seemed that Deirdre had been trying to hide in the bathroom with her daughter. There was a lot of blood. Talisa's throat, like her sister's, had been slashed. And Deirdre had been shot in the head. It was a horrific scene. The officers didn't know who any of the people were inside. But when they came back out, they were met with the detectives who would be working the case. They relayed what they had witnessed in the House of Horrors before them. And then they went to tape off the house as a crime scene and begin writing their reports. The detectives spoke with Mark, who was still outside the house. He seemed anxious to know what had happened and what the men had seen. The detectives asked the 16-year-old boy what he had witnessed. He told them the same thing he told the 911 operator, that he had only gotten as far as the foyer when he saw his father laying by the fireplace. He told the detective who all the people were that lived in the house or were supposed to be at the house that weekend because the two girls didn't live at the house with him and his father and his father's fiance, but she had custody on the weekends. Okay. So he explained who everyone should be in the house, and that really gave the detectives all the information they needed. Mark Duke was told to wait with an officer and let them take a look at the scene. While the officer got Mark's official statement, the detectives, along with the assistant district attorney who just arrived at the scene, did a walkthrough to see what they were dealing with. The detectives soon understood why the first officers at the scene had been so rattled, because they themselves found it hard to keep their composure. Who would so mercilessly slaughter a family like this? There were a lot of questions about what had happened, but their main concern 
was that there was a family that had been slaughtered and one person had escaped it and it had been Mark's room that those carvings were on the wall. So they were concerned about his safety. Like, was this a message that he was left or that they weren't done yet? I mean, that is a good question. I mean, are we dealing with um, maybe Mark got himself into some trouble Mm -hmm. and then maybe they were able to track him down, find out where he lived and then kind of, you know, these murders were a message. Hey, like maybe like you owe us money or you're in trouble or something. That is a massive possibility. It is a potential because Mark only in the past two years had come to live with his father. He was living with his mother previously. So could this be a part of like, I know the kid's only 16 years old, but like a past that he was a part of because there had to have been a reason at 14 years old you come to live with your father. I think that when you are dealing with um, a blended family, you know, you, you know, it seems like his father was getting married, you know, getting ready to get married again. Um, and you have like this kind of split custody thing or like, you know, one, you know, living one place, then living in another. I think it's actually really the first step is to talk to the mother, right? Find out like what's going on with him. Like what has up until this moment, let's just say, right? We need to know everything about your son that you know, so we could try to formulate like who could have done this. Yeah. Right. And then also talk to Mark because Mark might know something that he doesn't think is important because he's 16 and doesn't realize the ramifications of the smallest little details of anything. That's very true. So I think talking to the both of them to find out the family dynamic and to find out what everyone's relationship was Mm -hmm. will actually help if he was in some sort of issues or trouble. That's a good point. Yeah. And the police really want to speak to Mark. But the first thing they need to do is they need to ensure his safety. So they ask him if he's okay with being placed under protective custody before they can find like a more permanent solution for him to either be with a family member. And then once he's living with a family member somewhere that they could station a police car in front of the house because that always works in horror movies. right? Well, in horror movies, it doesn't work. (laughs) So while the investigation is happening, the crime scene's being processed, really within the first half an hour that the call is made, a man named Tommy Hunt arrived at the scene. He identified himself as the father of Chelsea and Chalisa. He was asking an officer if he could get through when the detectives approached him. They didn't have to say much to him about what happened because it must have been written all over their faces. Tommy Hunt immediately broke down. The detectives were devastated for the man who had just lost two beautiful little girls, but they were slightly suspicious as to how he found out about it so quickly. There was no media there. There wasn't even a lot of police chatter about it yet because they wanted to keep it quiet. In fact, the 911 call had come in less than half an hour prior. So it made them question even further what was happening with the members of the Duke Hunt families. That you bring up a great and excellent point, right? Like, I mean, like, you know, in this story, how did he know so quickly? I mean, it's possible that he could have been in the area. Maybe he felt that he needed to watch out for them in in some capacity. Maybe he didn't trust the new uh, man in in, um, the ex-wife's life. Or he knew what happened. Hmm. Or maybe he did it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I was saying. <laughs> that went right over my head. Sorry. But yes, the, yes, exactly. We could have a potential suspect here. Potentially. Sorry. I'm a little sick, so, you know, I'm a little off. It's okay. We'll give you grace. <laughs> it's okay, buddy. All right. Before we get any further, I think it's a good place to take a break and talk about the sponsor of today's show. Okay. Let's get back to the show. So naturally, Tommy Hunt would have been a suspect in the murders because he was the biological father of the girls and was the ex-husband of one of the victims. Randy Duke had not only been shot, he had been violently stabbed in the back and the face, in the face with a steak knife. So that was personal, and it was only natural that Tommy would have had something against Randy. He was going to become the stepfather of his girls, of whom he was very protective. Yeah, I mean, that could be motive if they have some bad blood between the two guys, right? Right, and he had custody of the girls. So now, here Deirdre is with Randy in a more stable home environment, so that might 
also have meant that maybe she might want to change the custody agreement soon. And that always causes conflicts for blended families. I agree. So when the detectives questioned him, he told them that when he and Deirdre got divorced, their custody agreement stated that the girls were to live with him. And then he went into detail about what happened that weekend. He said that on Friday night, his youngest daughter, Chalisa, had her first beauty pageant. Aw. How cute. They had pictures taken. And that must have been so heartbreaking to get those pictures back after her murder. Yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. When the pictures came back, they would show the tiny girl with her blonde hair and tight ringlets, smiling ear to ear in an angelic white dress. She had had so much fun that night. She told her family afterwards that she wanted to be in the next pageant, too. After the competition, which was at Thornsby Elementary School, Deirdre returned to his house with him and the two girls. The plan was that Deirdre was going to take the girls for the weekend, as she usually did. She had a room for them at the house that she was living at with her fiancé, Randy Duke. While Deirdre was taking Chalisa's dress off and getting the girls ready for the weekend trip, Tommy said that he played a game of trouble with his oldest daughter, Chelsea, and she had won the game. Probably like letting them win. Well, maybe. (laughs) You know you would do that. I would. I don't know. You don't think so? No. You're right. I'm a little too competitive. You are very competitive. I, yes. You know what? Why, what am I even saying yeah. right now? <laughs> the plan was that Deirdre was supposed to bring the girls back late Sunday afternoon. So just to give you like a timing thing, the 911 call came in. The bodies were discovered Sunday night at 9 p.m. Okay. So Tommy said that he waited, but Deirdre never showed up with the girls. He called. No one answered. So he said, that's why I drove there. He said, I had no clue that anything had happened. But when I pulled up, I saw police cars. In the back of my head, I kind of figured that he must have been in the area, saw the cars, and then obviously was alarmed and then went over there. Yeah, and the explanation completely makes sense to detectives. They would have done the same thing if they had been expecting their daughters hours earlier Mm -hmm. and they didn't show up. They would be like, what's going on and why is nobody answering the phone? Right, and also if he's there for pickup, I'm sure any kind of father knows this. If you're there to pick up or whatever, drop off, obviously you're waiting outside. So it's normal to be there. Exactly. So this kind of, like for now at least, makes sense to me. Right, but they still want to ask Tommy some more questions because he definitely has insight into the family. They want to know more about the dynamics between the blended family. So they asked Tommy to come down to the station and like clear up a lot of missing pieces that he definitely would have the answer to. So he agrees to go with them back to the station. Tommy Hunt said that he didn't have anything against Deirdre and that he only wanted the best for her. The two of them had married soon after they graduated high school and they decided to have children young because Deirdre wanted to have a family young. She wanted so badly to be a mother. And they had the two girls. They were very close in age. Despite their differences, Chelsea was their tomboy and Chalisa was their pageant girl. The sisters were very close to each other. Although Chelsea was only 18 months older than her younger sister, she was very protective of her. Tommy then shared that after Chalisa was born, they began to drift apart. And eventually they decided to get a divorce. They decided that that would be what was best for the happiness of their family. He said that Randy had been around for a long time and that he didn't have a problem with him either, as Deirdre had started dating him shortly after they had separated. The couple, they were still really good friends and that Tommy and Randy did have a good relationship with each other. Right. And sometimes, you know, it just doesn't work out and people move on and... It seemed like they were all very mature about the situation. Which is rare. Uh, rare at least I think good. it's rare. <laughs> so the detectives learned more of the same from Randy's family. The Hunt and Duke family really seemed to be the perfect image of what a blended family should look like. Deirdre and Tommy were good friends, and Tommy and Randy always saw eye to eye on things. According to Randy's brother, Randy had been over the moon when he met Deirdre. He had called him and told him that he had met someone and that she had two little girls. 
He was really in love with her, and she was with him. They had just gotten engaged when the murders happened, and the couple had been actively looking for venues to have their wedding at. By all accounts, Randy treated the girls very well and with great care. He loved being a dad, too. Like I said earlier, two years prior, he had gotten full custody of his son, Mark, when Mark was 14. By all accounts, Mark and the two girls got along well. He thought they were funny, and everyone said that he acted very brotherly towards them and was happy to finally see his father be happy. But in one night, it was ripped from all of them. When the detectives received the reports from the medical examiner and the crime scene unit, they were able to gain some insights as to what happened at the scene. Based on the autopsy and all the blood and how it had congealed a certain amount at the scene, the medical examiner placed the time of death at at least 36 hours before the discovery of the bodies. So that meant that they most likely died Friday night or early Saturday morning. So hold on. If it's 36 hours, where... How does that make sense if Mark li- the if the son lives at the house? Well, they're definitely for- gonna have to ask him questions. Okay, yeah, because I'm thinking now, like, okay, a 16 year old kid, where is he for 36 hours? Unless he's at his mom's house. He right? wasn't at his mom's house, but they're gonna ask him questions. They're uh, gonna okay. figure this out. Because the crime scene had been so extensive and gruesome, it took 12 hours to process the scene. What was interesting was that the analyst had found two different caliber casings at the scene. Two guns. And two guns usually indicated two people. But a knife was also used, so that could mean that there was a third person at the scene. But the outlier here were the carvings on Mark's bedroom wall. The detectives had seen the symbols before in Birmingham, Alabama. They were used by gangs to mark their territory. Gang activity could be plausible. It may be a gang ritual, an initiation, or maybe because the Marks were in Mark's room, they thought that this might have something to do with him, maybe some type of retribution or maybe a message that he was next. But this could also be related to Randy's job. Randy was a police officer. So there are also possibilities that this could have to do with a gang member that he angered or someone that knew a gang member, and this was a revenge thing. You're like some kind of retaliation. I mean, that makes sense, because if you are a cop, you are involved in a lot of things that could put a target on you and your family. Oh, yeah. Potentially. So either way, they were still worried for the safety of Mark Duke. Luckily, he was still under protective police custody, but now they wanted to talk to him because they needed more insight, and like you said, they kind of needed to know where he was. When Mark was sat down for questioning, it was clear that he was still very distraught. The detectives told him they knew it was going to be hard, but they would need to hear from him what happened that weekend. And he gave them his account of the entire weekend, and he said that, It had been a really busy time for him. He said that he had spent the weekend away at the Ellison's farm, working with his two friends. This was a way for him and his friends to make money. And he said that he had been with his friends, Michael and David, and then his other friend, Michael, who his name is Michael Ellison. It's his father's farm. But Mr. Ellison had asked all the boys if they could help him tear down an old barn. Okay. So they had been there the whole weekend and he was just sleeping in his friend's house. And then they would go and tear down the barn on Saturday and Sunday. Okay. I mean, that's a decent alibi, but I think we need to check that out now. Yes. (laughs) The plan had been for him to sleep at his friend's house. And that Friday, he said that he had gone to a movie with his friends Then they went back to the farm to sleep and then to get up for work that Saturday morning. He said when he got home on Sunday night, the front door had been locked. He opened the door with the code that he had. And when he got into the foyer and he's recalling this is now the third time he's telling the same exact story. He gets into the foyer. He sees his father and the blood trail leading up the stairs, which made him think that other people were hurt, too. 
So he grabbed the cordless phone, ran outside and called 911 because he didn't know if there was someone still in the house. The detectives wanted to follow up on what Mark had to say because at that point in the investigation, they wanted to clear all the family members before they started an outside investigation, the same as they did with Tommy Hunt. They spoke with Mark's friends, the ones that he had said he was staying at the Ellison farm with. That's Michael Brandon Samra, David Collins, and Michael Ellison. The two boys, Samra and Cullums, confirmed everything that Mark had said. One of the boys even still had the movie stub in his wallet that showed the boys had gone to the movies at 10 p.m. on Friday. Which is interesting because we do know that the murders happened on Friday night. So if all the boys were at the movie theater, that definitely helps kind of confirm Mark's story. In addition to that, they spoke with Mr. Ellison, who said the whole weekend the boys had been at the farm working to take down the barn. Okay, wow. So it does actually uh, pan out a little. I just I just get a sense that like everything is just too perfect. Now, I could be completely wrong, but and I know they're just kids, right? I, I just, I don't know. Their story just seems way too perfect. Too set up. The stub. The alibi, right? You know, the father, you know, it, it, I don't know. Could could there be some involvement here? Okay. I don't know. I'm just saying it seems too good to be true that this story's perfect. Yes, I see what you're saying. And that the family's so perfect. Everything about it. The whole entire There's thing. There's nothing wrong, but everyone's murdered. The stories all check out. You know, you know the, the kid's been checked, what, three times? And he's told the same story. The alibi's there. The movie ticket's available. I mean, I don't know. I don't keep movie stubs in my pocket. It's just like, I don't know. It just seems too good. Okay. Well, with the family cleared, the detectives went the route of a gang-related killing, mostly because of Randy's career. They had looked into Deirdre's history, and they hadn't found any history of anything involving gangs or drugs. So it, it obviously wasn't her. But... Based on the murders, it did seem as if Randy had been the target. In looking into Randy's career, they feel as if they hit their mark. Randy had been employed by the Alabama Beverage Control Commission in the Narcotics Bureau. Okay. Back in 1997, the Narcotics Bureau of the ABC was enemy number one to the gangs of Birmingham, whose business was mainly crack and powder cocaine. To make matters worse, Randy actually had done a lot of work as an undercover agent. In his undercover work, he did a lot of buys and sells under the name of Freddie Rollins. Usually he was tasked with going into a bar and trying to buy drugs off of someone. Randy would often then have to testify against that person in court. As you could imagine, people were not happy about being put in jail because they sold to an undercover police officer. Sometimes in court, they would yell out to him, threaten him, or call him names. Did someone finally make good on the threats that were being made to Randy? That would sound like the most obvious right. Uh, path, right? And sometimes the most obvious path is just the path that's taken. That's true. The detective looks through all of Randy's case files, but they can't find a connection between his arrests and the gang symbols that were left on the wall. Like they couldn't find a connection with that gang and any arrests associated with Randy or really anyone for that matter. People might have threatened him, but no one really received any hard time for the arrests that he made. And they were kind of charged with other things as well. So it seemed as if it was a dead end. Like, again, it looked too good to be true. Well, it's completely off because, I mean, if you're a gang that's that's going to leave a calling card that has nothing to do, no affiliation with anything of uh, his undercover work, well, there's a red flag. Right. Right? Well, the calling card is important, right? If a gang's leaving marks, they want – that the gang wants you to know that it's them. Exactly. But if there's no involvement at all, if there's no correlation, then someone's trying to deceive us here and, like – lie here right and that's exactly the direction the police go because next they thought that maybe the gang was after him because he owed them money 
Okay. Or there was something going on with him borrowing money. So they look into his bank account, but there's no large transactions and everything seems to be completely in order. So they were starting to think, like you said, that maybe the symbols were put there to throw them off. Also, to kind of continue on that path, wouldn't the house just be in complete disarray and money be missing and like things be taken if it was money motivated? So So that's why this doesn't make sense. Right. So the detectives felt as if they were at a dead end with the case. They were frustrated and felt like they needed help. This came on top of the fact that the media had really taken over the case, which of course makes sense. Pelham, Alabama was a quiet, blue-collar town. Crime and murder just didn't happen there. And now there was this family massacre, a quadruple murder. The people of the town were demanding answers, and they wanted to know who the monster was that did this, and they wanted to know that they would be off the streets. To address these valid concerns, the chief of police and the governor held a press conference on Monday afternoon, which really isn't even 24 hours from the time they found the bodies. So I have to say that the police are really communicating with the public right away. They explain that They're doing everything they can to solve the case, but that they need the help of the public. So a $20,000 reward was offered for any tips that are going to kind of lead to an arrest. Yeah, and let's be honest. I'm sure during, during this time, wearing a uniform as a police officer probably isn't the greatest thing right now because the amount of pressure that they're under right now... Like, I guess we could look at it this way, right? If a cop and his family are murdered in a home where no crime takes place in a town, then that means no one's safe. And if, you know, and if it's, right. you know, if that happened, it's going to happen somewhere else. And it would probably be even worse. Yeah, because you would assume that this man should be able to defend himself. Correct. So, like, of course the pressure's on. They have to have a conference and ask for people's help right away. Yeah. So, of course... A tip line means that a lot of calls come flooding in, and it takes a lot of manpower to follow up on all of those leads. However, the officers fielding the calls were noticing a pattern develop that they let the lead detectives know about right away. A lot of people calling in were saying that they didn't necessarily have information about the murders, but that they wanted to share information about Mark Duke. The son? The son. Okay. All of the callers expressed the fact that Mark was a troubled young man. He had a problem with his relationship, problems at school. He had an anger about him that didn't seem to stem from anything. He was just mean. Many people that he went to school with said that he tried to be really tough. And that meant acting out, being aggressive, being mean, and forming his own mini gang. Okay. Okay. So he he's a wannabe, tough guy, gang guy. Yes. Okay. So it gave him a power that he seemed to desire. This little gang that he had formed consisted of himself, Michael Samra, David Collins, and Michael Ellison, of whose father's farm the three boys had said they had been at the weekend of the murders. Oh, I love when all these clues just come together and fall in line. The four boys had a bad reputation. They did whatever it took to be feared and respected, as per those who went to school with some of them. Now, some of the boys were older, like Columns and Samra. The detectives obviously found this information very interesting. The detectives planned on asking Mark who was still in protective custody at this time. He's literally in a jail. (laughs) Not in a jail cell, but he is at the jailhouse, basically, for the county. Um, They want to ask him some questions. But before they can do that, they got a call from someone who said their niece had a conversation with Mark Duke's girlfriend. Now listen, I know there's a lot of hearsay there, so just bear with me. Okay. The caller said that his niece knew information about the killings that had not been released by the media because Mark's girlfriend had told her. 
Mark said that he had been the one to kill his entire family. So they changed the course of the investigation. And instead of going to talk to Mark Duke, they believed they would get more information and what they wanted from Mark's girlfriend because she seemed to already be talking about what she knew. So let me tell you something as a high school teacher. Teenagers, they are truly biologically incapable of keeping secrets. (laughs) So um, they all sing like canaries. And this is what Mark's girlfriend is about to do. So on Tuesday morning, this is the 25th of March, the detectives asked Mark's girlfriend and her mother to come to the police station to answer some questions around 7.30 a.m. It seemed like the caller had been spot on. She did know things about the murders that had not been shared with the public. She said that shortly after the killings on Friday night, that Mark had shared with her that he had killed his whole family with his three friends. Okay. And he gave all the details. He told her about how the girls died in different rooms. They had had their throats cut. Oh, my God. She even knew that Chelsea had been dragged from beneath her bed and attempted to fight off her attackers. This is so sad. Now they had to figure out whether or not she was involved or had just been told about the crimes. And that's a good point, actually. I wasn't even thinking that. But it, but you, but this person is giving valuable clues. Oh, yeah. Like, you wouldn't know those things unless you were there. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you were being told by the person that did it. <laughs> And it seemed like a lot of people are talking. It, it's like these people, these kids went through a lot of things to like get their alibi or whatever, but then they just tell everybody about it. Because, but because, because you, they're teenagers. Well, not only that, but, but you, but you did say it. He, they're trying to be tough in this like made up gang. Right. They want people to know that they amongst did their it. peers that they're tough because they want to be feared. Right. In order to find out, the detectives come up with a plan to catch them and her if she's lying to them. So they convince her and her mother that she should wear a wire and meet up with the other boys who were involved in the murder and get them to admit what they did. Now, she agrees to do this. They put a wire on her and they tell her how important it is for her to not turn the wire off because... They said if there's any missing pieces of audio or it cuts out and then comes back on, anything could have happened or been said in the time that the wires cut off. So the rest of the conversation is inadmissible. So you have to make sure that the wire stays on at all times. Can we just talk about how crazy that is that you're asking this teenage girl to wear a wire? She's 14 years old. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like we're we're talking about like, I mean – the, not only that, but like she knows now that her boyfriend just killed four people. And, and these boys. Right. And now you're, you know, that must be so unnerving as a 14 year old girl that I'm going to wear a wire to someone who's violent like this? Well, multiple people. Oh my God. And if you think about it, these boys are capable of murdering an entire family. And now they're saying at 14 years old, go in there, wear a wire. Yeah. Invite them over your house with your family. The same I mean, thing could happen to her. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I know they need this, but that is crazy to me. Yeah, I would have told my you're, daughter, Yeah, let's say no to this. You're putting another kid in jeopardy, another family in jeopardy. I mean, this is wild. Well, she does agree to do this. She goes home, but then at some point during the day, the wire is turned off. So within a few hours, the detectives go back over there and they did have eyes on the apartment. So they knew that the boys weren't over. So they didn't they knew she they weren't in any danger. And they said, well, what happened? And she said, I got I'm scared. Yeah, I'm of course. scared to be alone with these people. And then if they start questioning me or they find out that I have a wire on me, like I could die. Yeah. Uh, they pressure her. And I really hope she had parental guidance on this. I don't know. It's not really talked about too much, but they tell her how important it is um, that these boys need to be off the street because they're so violent. They could kill other people. 
They remind her about the two little girls and she agrees to try to do this again. So she they put the wire back on her and she invites the boys to come over. Two of them end up going to her apartment. And that's Michael Samra and Michael Ellison. While the three of them were having a conversation, the two boys never went into detail about what happened, but they did admit that they were involved in various aspects of the crime. And for the detectives, that was enough. They then brought in all three boys for questioning. They spoke first with Michael Ellison because he seemed to be the one on the outskirts of the group the most. He told the police that Mark Duke had killed his whole family right away. <laughs> That's it. He just he's done. Ellison said that the four of them had all driven to the house, but that he did not go inside, that he had waited in the car. This confirmed for detectives that they were on the right track and they knew that they should continue putting pressure on the boys. The next boy they spoke to was David Collins. At first, he denied everything, but then they played him the tape of Ellison's confession, where he said that they all drove to the Duke house and the other three boys went inside. Once he heard this, he began to talk. He told the detectives that he had been there, but he hadn't been the one to kill anyone. But he said, I can tell you who did and what they did. See, so yeah, right. Like they, they love this now because they're getting to these, the ones that they know that they could break and that they have evidence on, which is like what they need. Right. And they're slowly getting more and more evidence. So now they can go eventually back to Mark Duke and say, listen, we have the whole story from so many people. So next they want to talk to Michael Samra. He, like the others, worked to diminish his role in the crime. But once it was clear that his other friends were talking to the detectives, he knew that he would have to tell the truth about what happened that past Friday night. He said that Mark had been telling the group for a while that he was going to kill his father. Mark had been upset because he had gotten into trouble for something. It's not really clear what. But because he had gotten into trouble, he had to pay his father restitution for something. And his dad was, like, being insistent that he pay him back. Oh, a consequence for bad behavior. How dare he as a father? <laughs> and that was the reason why Mark had to take the job of tearing down the old barn because his father was being insistent that he pay him back. And, of course, Mark wasn't being very diligent about that. So his father was not happy with him. And that was causing a lot of tension between the father and son. He said that on Friday night, Mark had asked his father if he would be able to use the pickup truck. But because, you know, he hadn't been paying him back, his father said no. It was because of that that Mark told the other three boys that that was going to be the night he killed his father. To him, that was the last straw. The fight over the pickup truck. You got to be kidding me, right? No. The plan was for all of them to meet at Ellison's house and plan the murder. Samra said that when they were having the discussion, he had said to Mark, what about the three other people that live at your house? And Mark's response was, well, we can't leave any other witnesses. And to him, he believed that Mark was implying that he planned to kill everyone. Then he got into what happened that night. And this is going to be rough, too. Okay. I'm sorry, guys. He said that when they got into the house, Mark's father, Randy, and Deirdre were watching TV. Talisa was coloring at the coffee table. He said that Mark walked right up to his father and pointed the gun at him. So his father was completely aware of what was happening. He said, his father said to his son, Mark, you don't have to do this. And Mark said, I will see you in hell. And then shot his father between the eyes. Oh, my God. Deirdre screamed and began to freak out, as Samra put it. As she was reacting in horror, as her fiancé lay dead next to her on the couch, Mark attempted to shoot her. 
but when he pointed the gun at her, she flinched. And as a result, she got shot in the mouth and it basically blew her jaw off. And that's why her teeth were all over the couch and the coffee table. But she was not down. Deirdre's only thought was for her daughter. She grabbed her six-year-old daughter and ran past Samra, who said he did nothing to stop her. He was kind of in shock, too. She went upstairs and into the master bedroom after telling her other daughter to run and hide. So that's why the blood trail led all the way to the bathroom. Yes. We know that she went into the master bathroom and barricaded herself and Chalisa in it. At that point, Samra said that he followed her upstairs in an attempt to grab her and the child and get them back downstairs. However, he wasn't able to get into the bathroom because she had locked the door from the inside. So he ran back downstairs to try and ask Mark what to do. And when he went back downstairs, he found that Mark had grabbed a steak knife and was stabbing his father. I don't even understand. There's, there's so much violence in this guy, I, I, in this young kid, all because you couldn't use the truck. Like, I feel like we it's need senseless. to. I, yes. Either there's something that needs to be addressed with his psyche at a later time, or there's other stuff that we don't know, because this makes no sense as to why you would kill your father and everyone in that house and these poor kids. Well, that's what everyone said is they just truly didn't understand the anger behind Mark Duke, yeah. where this came from, or and and sometimes, sometimes there is no answer. I mean, that is true too. We've seen that time and time again. But it's just I, I always feel like when you're dealing with, you know, an entire family, like those kids are innocent. They didn't even do anything to you. You know, it doesn't matter to him. No. Once Mark had stabbed his father so aggressively that the knife broke, he and Samra made their way upstairs. Samra said that Mark took a step backwards and kicked into the master bathroom door, which is how the top left panel broke. Deirdre, who was bleeding excessively, had barricaded herself against the door to prevent them from getting in. Mark put the gun through the hole in the door and shot her in the head with her daughter next to her. Mark went to shoot Chalisa, but he couldn't. They were out of bullets. But the girl was trapped in the bathroom, so they didn't worry about her getting out. The two boys went downstairs and got two butcher knives. They went back into the master bathroom, unlocked the door through the hole in it, and yanked Chalisa from the bathtub where she was attempting to hide herself behind a curtain. Samra said that Mark told the girl, this will only hurt for a second. And then he cut her throat twice. Wow. Next, This they, is unbelievable. I can't even, this sorry. is unbelievable. I know. It's, you, know you know what it is? It's you know, these, it's not easy doing this research. But no, I, no, I understand. You know what it is too? It's also, I mean, his acts are horrendous. I mean, there's no words to describe how bad these are, but it's also these like one-liners, these things that he is saying right before he commits these horrible acts that make it even like... Like, like he's living a fantasy. Yes. Yeah. This, this is, is not reality. No. Him. It's very weird. No, I think he's blurred that line between reality and, and you know... Oh, wow. A six-year-old girl. I mean, there's There's, there's no nothing words. tough about that. No. Next, they began looking for Chelsea. They went into the girl's room. Imagine what seven-year-old Chelsea must have heard... From under her bed. Yeah. Must have been terrifying. Mark Duke found her under her bed and yanked her out. She fought him hard. Samra said that Mark finally grabbed a hold of the girl and held her down. And because it was taking all of his strength to hold the girl down, he told Samra to finish the job. And he said he listened. He grabbed the knife and he cut the girl's throat. Samra's affect when telling this um, was emotionless, and the detectives were sick having to have to listen to it from him. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's stunning. It's stunning that that somebody can do this and just be 
totally fine giving their recall of what they did like that. Right. And one of the detectives wasn't able to stop himself. He asked, why did you have to kill the girls, though? And he said that Mark told him they couldn't leave any witnesses. But Mark, this is all very similar, actually, to the Hollinsburg massacre one, is that the intention was always to kill everyone. They didn't have to kill the girls. They could have went in with masks on. They chose not to. And then that made them witnesses. You know what I'm saying? Right. The, the plan true. was always in Mark Duke's mind to kill the whole Take family. Take them all out. Yeah. Yes. So after the murders, they carved symbols into the walls on Mark's room to make it look like a gang was after him. And then they decided to go to the movie for an alibi. Like you said. Yep. The, the Actually, I knew it was too good to be true. Mm-hmm. Michael's, Michael Samra showed the detectives where the boys had disposed of the knives. When the knives were found, exactly where he said they would be, they still had blood and hair from the girls on them. Finally, the detectives wanted to talk to Mark Duke. They went to visit him where he was in protective custody in the Shelby County Jail. They told him everything that they had learned, and he asked them, You think I killed my family? And they responded that they knew he did. He then said, screw you, I want my lawyer. And that was the last time they interviewed Mark Duke. The case was open and shut. Not only were there witnesses, not only did he tell his girlfriend, but there was ballistics that matched the gun from the house to the killings. His and Samra's DNA were all over the two knives. So, I mean, it was... Open and shut. On March 26, 1997, Ellison and Cullums were charged with murder, and Samra and Mark Duke were charged with capital murder. They were going to try them for the death penalty. Ellison and Cullums both took plea deals and were sentenced to 16 years. The two were both released from prison in 2014. They had been eligible for parole as early as 2004, but no parole board would give these boys parole, which I agree with. In March of 1998, Michael Brandon Samra was tried by a jury and sentenced to death. Okay. Samra did testify against Mark Duke during his trial, and Duke was convicted of capital murder and also sentenced to death. However... As we know in the true crime community, after the Roper versus Simmons decision that ruled it was cruel and unusual punishment to sentence a juvenile to death, he was resentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, because at the time of the murders, he was only 16 years old. Yeah, it's really complicated, isn't it? Um, like, I, it's tough. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. The Roper versus Simmons decision... There were cases where the crimes of the children were considered to be so heinous that the death penalty was still left on the table and at the resentencing, they were still sentenced to death. Um, One of those cases included, I believe, true crime community, correct me if I'm wrong, but the boy who had killed someone and left them under his bed and the child was under his bed while he was talking to police this is horrific this crime i think is just as heinous so i'm surprised at resentencing that he was not still sentenced to the death penalty i don't know it's very this is wild to me this case yeah i mean he convinced other people to do it to do it as well yeah um so he's resentenced he's still in prison today Samra had been 19 at the time of the crime. So the Roper versus Simmons decision did not apply to him. And Michael Samra was executed by the state of Alabama on May 15, 2019. On that day, the following statement was released by the governor of Alabama. For more than 20 years, the loved ones of Randy, Deirdre, and the two young daughters... Chalisa and Chelsea 
have mourned an unbearable and unimaginable loss. Four lives are brutally taken far too soon because of the malicious, intentional, and planned out murders by Michael Samra, also Mark Duke. Alabama will not stand for the loss of life in our state, and with this heinous crime, we must respond with punishment. These four victims deserved a future, and Mr. Samra took that opportunity away from them and did so with no sense of remorse. This evening, justice has been delivered to the loved ones of the victims, and it signals that Alabama does not tolerate murderous acts of any nature. After careful consideration of the horrendous nature of the crime, the jury's decision, and all factors surrounding the case, the state of Alabama carried out Mr. Samra's sentence this evening. Although this can never recover the lives lost, I pray that their loved ones can finally find a sense of peace. I think it's weird. It's a weird sense of justice, we could say in air quotes, that Mark Duke is still alive and Samra's been executed right however you can make the argument that might be a worse fate i know right it's i know well i think it's because we kind of towed around the the line and what's like what you know because there's a lot there's a lot of red tape there there's a lot of political things around about around that i always say it because it's true but it's like i don't it's hard to remove yourself from it for a second and be like okay he was 16 when you hear about how heinous these acts were it's almost like you. There's a part of you that almost doesn't care because you know, no, it was planned. He could have pulled back at any time. He didn't need to kill the girls. He didn't even need to kill his father. You know, but no. you know, and it kept going and got progressively worse. Well, they could have went to the police right away when he was talking about killing his father. Absolutely. I don't know if it would have been taken seriously, but it would have alleviated them of being involved with this crime and then being punished for it and participating in it. But here's the other side of it. One was executed and one will never be able to see the light of day again. Right. right? So if we look at it that way, yes, he, he wasn't sentenced to death, but he stole the lives of all those people. But now his life is being stolen from him being right. locked away and never able to do anything again. Yeah. So he's never going to have a life ever. He's just locked in a box. I so agree. you know what? I guess if you look at it that way, it's the same thing almost. Almost. That's true. That's just such a sad one. Those poor little girls. Yeah. It's and, so sad. you know, Randy and Deirdre were having a second chance at life again, you know? And that was cut short, too. Yeah. Really sad. I hate to hear about, like, so many people just just taken away. No, you know, all the life that they could have had, you know, the lives that they could have had, you know, what could have been, you know, like right. all those things that always gets me in everything that we always cover. It's like what could have been their lives if they would have lived, you know, you know so especially sad. the kids. All right. So two things before we go. First, we're thanking our Patreon supporters. And then John's going to read some reviews. No. OK. We want to say thank you to Holly Barbie, Elizabeth Blanger, Karen McCormick. Carly Gottsall, Kima Denise, Ali Tomeo, Siren Syme, Anna, Kayla, Becky J, Rebecca Karev, Isabella Gebhardt, Alyssa Andrews, Manda Duda, Rachel Sue upped her pledge, Christian Cudde, Lisa Shimu, Jennifer Bales, Nicole Alford upped her pledge, Alicia Devane, Maisie Abbott, Katie Williams, Melissa Fogel, Carrie Fraser Jacobson, Danny Kenyon, Amy Pratt, and Sarah. Okay, John, are you are you ready? There's just a few. <laughs> okay, I'm so it's try. not too much. All okay. Right. Yep. Do you want me to hold the computer in front of you? <laughs> okay. Wait. Okay. <laughs> All right, guys. If you aren't listening to true crime, you are definitely missing out. I wrote a review before I didn't do the show justice, so I'm redoing it. I listen to this every day on my way to work after I drop my kids off from at school. Kay is an amazing... Sorry, guys. Kay is amazing. <laughs> she always goes into so much detail, and John... Well, John is hilarious. They are such a great team. I love listening to her. And that was... Uh, was that Aubrey Joe? I think, right? 
Okay. Sorry, guys. Okay. <clears throat> okay. You're doing good. You're doing good. Relax. Obsessed. <laughs> it took one episode for me to find my new favorite podcast. The, the amount of detail, humanizing the victims, and the perfect amount of banter. My only regret is not finding this podcast sooner. Bree McGee. There you go. Good job. <laughs> this is so funny. I have Kay just holding this computer up to my face. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. Title. Well-spoken true crime. Focused. Well-researched. Empathetic. Reactions of true crime. John is a devoted, kind husband. Oh, thank you. Aww. To Kay, always supporting her through... Uh, through uh, yeah, through complete opinions of the facts she tells. John has common sense and quality additions to the podcast, while Kay is just a great reader slash story writer. Well, storyteller, story writer. Thanks for being a favorite of mine to run and to listen to on my drive to work. Uh, Mystery Manor CJ via so Apple nice. Podcasts. Okay, one more. Okay. Okay, I don't yep. want to do too much for you. And I'm sweating over here. <clears throat> All right, what do we got? Uh, oh, oh, is this Aubrey Joe again? I think. No, the one below it. Oh, I'm dumb. Sorry. All right, title. Uh, <laughs> oh no, there's no title. Yes, it is. It's Where? Above, it's on the page above. <laughs> oh, if I. <laughs> okay, okay. Sorry, guys. Okay, title. If I could give it a ten, I would. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, when I first started listening, I prejudged <laughs> your show. LOL. I'm sorry because. You're my go-to podcast. However, I wish it was weekly. Trust us. Us too. Us too. Um, JK, but seriously, I love your show, and I binge listening to all your older episodes. Thank you for giving us cases that are not already uh, talked about. So far, I've only heard a couple of these cases. Amber. Well, thank you. You know, honestly, I wish that we were, we, we were able to do um, a weekly podcast. That, that would, would be, be so nice. something that I think we would both really want to take on but maybe as of now this is what it is well sorry guys i talked too quickly my my brain's bad but we got through it so good and then with (laughs) practice it will it will get perfect yes Uh, see that's why with what k does is just phenomenal i are you okay you need to take a cold shower yeah yeah i like i I should probably go outside real quick and cool (laughs) off or something i don't know how you do that how do you do that without getting all like um flustered flustered yeah I guess just takes practice. I guess. You know? Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And again, if you want to see us at Patreon, uh, on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash true crime couple and leave us a review so John can read it. I'll read them. Yeah. <laughs> Until next time, guys. Don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. <laughs>